Hello, welcome back. This is Adam Rosen. You're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to talk to you about optimization. And I talked about this a little bit in the first few episodes. This is actually now over a year ago when I started this back in March. Um, but this is a lot more detailed and um, and it's very important. And I understand as a trainee, as an intern or as, as a resident, you may not have um, as much control over these things um, as when you're an attending in certain institutions, maybe more or less. But again, if if the attending saw somebody, booked somebody for surgery and either didn't see or didn't realize or maybe something changed since the last time they were seen in the office, you know, it is your job to bring that up and then let the attending make the decision as to whether or not that surgery should go forward or whether or not it should be canceled and delayed. Um, I also, you know, I always say I'm a doctor first and a surgeon second. And, um, you know, that, that may be counterintuitive to some surgeons, but I truly believe that, that we're not just operating on the body part, you know, we're taking care of the whole person. And there are times where we can't or don't have that luxury of picking and choosing when to operate on somebody. So someone comes to the ER and has a fracture and they're on a blood thinner and you have to operate through it, or they have morbid obesity, and you have to operate on it, or they have uncontrolled diabetes, and you have to operate on it. But we all know that, you know, most morbidity and mortality, you know, lectures begin with a 65-year-old smoker, uncontrolled diabetic, morbidly obese person underwent an elective XYZ. And you shouldn't be surprised that they had a complication. Now, I also made... um, this this handout form checklist that I shared with a lot of primary care doctors. And I'm not sure um, how some of them took it. Um, I was really hoping to get some back and forth feedback on what they liked and didn't like, because I'm not sure that all of them um, look at things the way that we do. Uh, and this is even more important in the elective outpatient or same day discharge uh, arena of hip and knee replacement, because you know, studies have now shown that, you know, if these patients are not optimized, these are the patients that are most likely to either be canceled for a same-day discharge if it was done at a surgery center, or most likely to be readmitted or seen in an ER, which really eats into the bundle and leads to potential complications. So a lot of information here, and you're not going to have to think about this for every single patient, um, but you have to come up with some algorithm that works for you so you can go through and capture Um, the particular things that we're going to talk about that can affect um, your patient. So like you learned in medical school, it's really important to take a good past medical history. So, you know, past medical history things that I'm looking for are, is the patient a solid organ transplant patient? We have a big transplant program, so I do have those patients. And I have to talk to them, you know, specifically about that increased risk of infection because they're on immunosuppression. And we also, in addition to the primary, get the transplant team involved so that they're aware and they might have specific recommendations that we look for. So that's an important thing to look for. Um, Another thing, diabetes. We're all kind of aware of diabetes. Um, I'm very, um, a big proponent of talking to patients about their diabetes because I always tell people my least favorite operation is an amputation and most commonly 
These become for infected, you know, osteo become from a foot ulcer. So I'm looking for, is their diabetes controlled? Is their A1C less than seven? You know, if it's over seven, that's what I'm talking to them. Hey, we're going to delay your surgery. You know, maybe you have to lose weight, modify your meds, modify your diet, see a nutritionist. And if they're being followed by their primary uh, and it has been consistently high, that's where I usually refer them to endocrinology. And occasionally I do have the brittle diabetic where endocrinology will say, hey, we have got this person as good as possible. Their A1C um, you know, is 7.4. It's not going to get any better. Patient's aware of the risks. I have the discussion. you know, And then we can move forward if the patient's in agreement. Now, some patients, um, and it's a very simplified way of looking at it, but you know, if you think about um, C-reactive protein returning quicker than SED rate, you know, the fructosamine may normalize quicker. So someone that is delayed, A1C might take a little bit longer to um, improve, I'll sometimes look for a fructosamine just to make sure that they're you know, moving and heading in the right direction. Kidney disease, we all know how much of a risk kidney disease is. So I'm looking at their creatinine and determining, you know, is it normal, is it stable? Um, is it high? Is it stable? Is it worsening? Is this is a new change? Do we have to, you know, delay surgery and talk to their primary? You know, is there something going on? Is it medication related? Should they be seen in nephrology? Um, but you have to look at that because I even say, even in the office for pain, I'm looking at people's creatinine because I don't want to recommend the use of an NSAID if somebody has kidney disease. Sometimes they don't know. So you have to look at that stuff. And again, um, the histories of prior things. Have they had an MI? Have they had a stroke? Do they have peripheral vascular disease? You know, those are all important things. And you might need special workups depending on how recent that was with cardio um, or vascular um, or they might need special studies. I kind of leave those you know, up to those specialists. Do they have autoimmune disease? Are they on prednisone? Are they on DMARDs? Um, who is their rheumatologist? And I always like to get in touch with the rheumatologist. So again, they're aware that the patient's going to have surgery and they might have recommendations um, on what meds can be held or changed. And they might have strong recommendations on what their stress dose should be um, if they're on prednisone. But I also like them to be aware. So if the patient does come off of a certain medication and flare, you know, the rheumatologist isn't caught off guard a week post-op that they didn't know the patient was having surgery. It's always good to have a nice chart. Um, and there's a lot of uh, articles that you can find that have these really nice charts of all the um, DMARDs and what should be held and what shouldn't be held and for how long they should be held. Uh, and it's also great to share with your staff. So, you know, when a patient calls, you know, they can go, oh yeah, this is our protocol, you know, hold, yes, hold that or it's okay to continue that. Um, depression and anxiety, it's really, really important and, and to look at that because we also know that those patients that have depression or anxiety may have increased pain or increased issues after surgery. Um, there's a lot of stress involved. So, you know, are they on medications? Are they stable on the medications? And I like to make sure, are there, are there therapists aware they're having surgery? Um, because sometimes the stress um, and pain can magnify some of their other psychological issues. And it's nice that their therapist, again, is aware um, of this upcoming surgical date. Do they have Parkinson's disease? Again, definitely more of an issue um, um, from a neurologic standpoint, but can lead to contractures in the knee, dislocations in the hip. Uh, so you, again, you want to make sure that they're aware of that. And you may have heard me talk about it on the other episode for, you know, hips. A lot of times if they have that scissoring gait, adductor contracture, sometimes an adductor release, you want to be aware, hey, doing a hip replacement for arthritis, but they also have Parkinson's disease. Let me check their gait. Um, Alzheimer's and dementia. You know, trying to really lessen um, the need for elective surgery in those patients, but 
that's more if it's severe. You know, if it's mild, you have to let the patient um, and the family member, spouses, significant others know that, you know, this may exacerbate, worsen, sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term, uh, the underlying dementia with anesthesia. Uh, do they have COPD? Is it severe? You know, is there need for a pulmonary consult? Sleep apnea, you know, bringing their masks to the, to the hospital, you know, and making sure that you know, they're aware of the issues, making sure it's under control because you're going to be having anesthesia and giving narcotics potentially that can worsen that. The other big thing is weight. And we talk about both overweight and underweight. So it's nice to have people in that normal 18 to 25 BMI. That's rare that you see that, but it's nice. Um, you know, 25 to 35, I think, are the majority of people that we see. But you have to talk to these people and you're going to have to determine what your cutoff is, um, you know, whether or not it's 35, whether or not it's 40, uh, and whether or not you refer to a metabolic clinic. Patients can do it on their own. You know, you have to look at nutrition because I say, you know, still people can be morbidly obese and still be malnourished. So you have to look at those nutritional labs like albumin. But even the BMIs under 18, you know, those are the patients actually that have a higher risk of complication than BMIs over 40. Um, next, we're looking at, you have to look at the skin. So, you know, you have to get the pants off. You have to take a look, you know, for hips, especially if you're doing like a posterior or anterior, you gotta look at the skin, the tissue, the fat distribution in those areas, you know, and can you safely do one approach versus another? You know, same thing with the knee. Um, you know, do they have venous stasis? Uh, do they have ulcerations? Do they have lymphedema? You know, these um, some people can be really heavy and more sort of the, the the tomato on a toothpick, skinny legs. You know, for a knee, BMI is high. Knee approach may not be bad, but some people aren't super heavy, but they're all hip. You know, doing a hip approach, it can be really, really deep to get down to the hip joint. So you really have to assess each patient. And I've occasionally caught people with you know, lesions around their knee, um, you know, and said, hey, before we do surgery, let's get you to derm and turns out to be skin cancer, which is, you know, common in Southern California. Um, and also psoriasis, you know, you look for plaques around the area and I let patients know, hey, you know, if you have a breakout prior to surgery, just call me, send me a picture, you know, just know that if the plaque is right over this area, I'll show them where the incision is going to be, you know, surgery's on hold and we have to wait for that plaque to kind of calm down. Uh, vascular issues. Ask the patient, have you ever had a blood clot? Have you ever had a pulmonary embolus? Um, and even, you know, checking for family history, because sometimes, you know, mom and sister both have had blood clots. Maybe they have factor V lida and patients never been tested. So you have to determine, you know, is there something more that we're going to do? Arterial disease, check pulses, you know, do they have ruber? You know, is it a male that has no, no hair, you know, distal calf? Um, you know, worry about arterial insufficiency. They might have vascular claudication, and that can affect, you know, their wound healing. So you want to make sure that that's assessed and worked up ahead of time. And then cardiac disease, you know, they're going to have to get, um, you know, their EKG. Um, are they on a beta blocker? There's studies showing that, you know, starting a beta blocker just prior to surgery or not giving a beta blocker they're chronically taking around the perioperative period can increase the risk of heart problems. So I'm always checking, you know, are, are you on a beta blocker, making sure that it's being continued, you know, are they on an anticoagulant and then Working with cardio, you know, can they stop it? Do they have to be bridged? You know, what's the risk? You know, do they have a watchman? Do they have, you know, an atrial appendage? Do they have atrial fib? Was it for stroke? You know, do they have a patent for amen oval? Lots of things, um, but kind of leave that up to, you know, cardiology to work up. But you have to ask those questions to make sure they get the cardiology. Uh, and then micro, um, you know, have you ever had a staph infection? Yes. Was it MRSA? I don't know. You know, what medicine they put you on? You know, Bactrim, Doxy, and the ER for a finger? Um, you know, maybe they put them on IV Vanco. Uh, so, you know, oh, probably MRSA. And it's nice if you can look back in the chart 
you know, I'm always clicking on in our EMR, you know, I'm checking the nasal swab, but I always click on micro. And this way I can look back through the history and see, did they ever have a culture with something like MRSA in the past? Um, do they have a history of chronic infections? You know, this comes into teeth and poor dentition. Have they had chronic UTIs? You know, these are all things that you want to ask because there may be additional tests like a UA um, or other workups that you might need prior um, to the surgery. You know, do they have HIV? You know, what's their viral load? Again, getting their infectious disease doc involved are all important. Social things, um, tobacco, alcohol. So, you know, big thing, um, and again, dependent on the doc, but for me, got to quit smoking. Um, two weeks before, two weeks after, I will check a nicotine test. Um, and I'm a realist too, you know, a pack a day smoker that gets down to one or two, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and make sure that they understand the risks. Um, but you know, someone smoking a half a pack, you know, five, six cigarettes a day, you got to quit. And I explained to them why, you know, wound healing, venothromboembolic disease, infection, and alcohol. Um, you know, we don't see as much of the DTs as we used to because patients aren't in the hospital that long. But, you know, when patients used to be in the hospital three, four days, you'd see a lot of people that were drinking, you know, a bottle of wine a night would go through massive DTs. So you want to make sure that, you know, if they're drinking, that they're not drinking a lot. And again, you know, patients lie, numbers don't was sort of a, a quote that I heard from an internist that I trained with. And, you know, I'm looking at, you know, the MCV, you know, high mean corpuscular volume, you know, you got to ask, hey, if there's not a reason for this to be elevated, most likely due to, you know, alcohol intake, you know, and, and asking, even if they say I have two two glasses of wine a night, well, how many bottles is that and how how big of a glass are you using? Because some people fill it up to the brim and you can go through a bottle pretty quickly. Their functional status. So you really want to look at these patients and have a good discussion um, because, you know, the normal everyday walker um, versus someone on a cane or a walker or even a wheelchair is going to have a very different recovery, you know, from someone that just has pain and is still able to, you know, participate in some sports. And you have to make sure they understand, you know, the risks of coming in weak and disabled that may delay their recovery. Um, and also, is there things that you can do? Like these are the, the few patients I sometimes get into therapy prior to try to optimize them as much as possible from a functional range of motion and strength standpoint. Because, you know, if they can't climb stairs, they have a lot of muscle atrophy, um, it's going to be really hard to get them moving quickly. Um, but if you can strengthen them somewhat, even if it means delaying the surgery for a period of time, you might improve their outcome. It's kind of analogous to ACLs. You know, you got a bad ACL and someone's stiff, you know, you don't operate on them just because their ACL's out. You, you optimize them and get their range of motion back, you know, before you do that surgery. Um, and then you got to look at the medications. You know, some of these we talked about already. So, you know, if they're on disease-modifying agents, got to coordinate with rheumatology. You know, if they're on long-term corticosteroids, you know, do they need a stress dose? Anticoagulants, do they need a bridge? Can they come off of it? Look at the supplements. You know, these patients that come in on 10 supplements, all of which may cause an increased risk in bleeding, you got to get them off that. Uh, and then narcotics, you know, luckily less and less people are coming in on chronic narcotics, but you got to get them off those narcotics. You got to find a way to wean them. And you got to decide if you're going to operate on these people on chronic narcotics. And then if so, um, a very clear and concise plan with, especially if they have a pain doc of who's prescribing, how much they get and for how long. So there's, there's no question after about who's giving them the medicine and how much they're getting. Um, and I always try to make it a habit to either get them off or um, at least wean them down. Because I find a lot of these patients come from pain management on high doses of narcotics 
with no other supplemental non-narcotic pain management, you know, no anti-inflammatories, no acetaminophen, um, and they've just been constantly kind of weaning this in the opposite direction, up, um, not down. Uh, and then vitamin D. Um, I always kind of check vitamin D because, again, I believe that we own the bone. And, you know, if they're low, um, we're repleting, depending on how low, slightly low, over-the-counter, really low, um, you know, then they're getting prescription dose and making sure that if they haven't had a routine DEXA uh, based on their age and other issues, that we get them into um, to a DEXA scan at some point in the near future. And then again, um, risk of venothromboembolic disease, which we kind of touched on before, you know, do they have a risk? Have they had an issue? And again, sometimes patients don't know. So based on your system, you can sometimes look and I scan back through the packs, see a bunch of ultrasounds, I'm checking them and going, oh, you know, negative, negative, oh, positive. Oh, you did have a blood clot before. Maybe I won't put you on aspirin because you're not normal risk. I'm going to actually put you on chemical prophylaxis. Do they have cancer? Is there an active malignancy? So you have to see, are there other things? Sometimes someone has, you know, stable cancer that's been treated um, and they can't cure it, but they're being maintained with some type of medication. So they're going to be at a higher risk. Uh, And the the hematologic disorders, again, which we talked about, you know, you want to look through the family history. Anybody in your family ever had a history of blood clots? Um, And making sure that the answer there is no. Anesthesia questions quick, you know, have you had anesthesia? Severe postoperative nausea and vomiting. Malignant hypothermia is the big thing, um, but checking to see if anybody's had major issues there. It's always nice, too, and the anesthesiologist will ask, though, if they had surgery, if they were a difficult intubation. Um, that's kind of always nice to know going in. But then also the rheumatoids, you know, and necks and ankylosing spondylitis. You know, if they're, you know, very stiff neck or unstable neck, you may want to touch base with anesthesia ahead of time just so they're aware, uh, depending on your hospital and whether or not they have a glide scope or fiber optics available or if something special. Okay, so a lot of information there. And again, that's just all sort of like medical, social history. Um, And then, you know, we get into um, the labs where you got to take a good look at the labs. You know, do they have a really low white blood cell count? Is there some underlying hematologic issue? Um, is there some malnourishment issue, high risk for infection? Do they have this abnormally high white blood cell count? Why? You know, do they have an infection somewhere? Or again, do they have some hematologic thing? So really high, really low. You got to ask why. You got to look and get them in if they haven't seen hemoc and figure out why before you do this elective surgery. Um, anemia. And, you know, my staff's really good. They have this nice thing because, you know, somebody comes in with anemia right away that they know, hey, if it wasn't um, ordered, we're going to check a B12, we're going to check iron stores. You know, I have so many, even primaries that will, you know, someone's got anemia of like, you know, hemoglobin 10 and and they just get cleared for surgery. Um, No one's ever cleared, but you should be optimized. And a hemoglobin of 10 isn't optimized. And you can't just say, you know, anemia of chronic disease because they're 75. What disease? How long has it been that way? Have you ruled out other causes? Because if someone's B12 is low, they got pernicious anemia, um, we can replete it, maybe bring it up. Are their iron stores low? Can we replete it and bring it up? Do they have a GI bleed? You know, do you have dark stools or things like that? Uh, and then if all of those, you know, are normal, no GI bleed, no iron store or iron deficiency issues, no B12 issues, um, you know, maybe they have kidney disease and maybe they're a candidate for Procrit. Uh, that you can boost their blood count prior to surgery to reduce the need or risk for a transfusion postoperatively. Um, but don't just believe because they're anemia and someone says chronic anemia. Um, if they haven't looked up and checked for other things, you got to do that and you got to check. 
uh, low platelets. You know, again, why? What's their bleeding risk? Are they functional platelets? Uh, then you got to get hemonc involved again, you know, for that one. Now, looking at their comprehensive, and again, you know, the albumin is important. You know, someone has low albumin, I don't care how healthy they look, you know, their risk of wound complication um, and infection is higher. So, you know, delay surgery, get it up. Um, if you're making sure they're going in the right direction, you can check a pre-albumin uh, to make sure that things are moving in the right direction, get them in to see a nutritionist, but all different things that you can do to improve their outcome. And then again, chronic kidney disease. So again, if they have chronic kidney disease, you have to have the discussion as to why it increases the risk of complications and talk to medicine. And if they can't help, get them into nephrology, you know, see if there's a change in medications that can be made um, or are they as optimized as possible. And these are then also the people that you really have to make sure that you keep hydrated postoperatively because, you know, mild chronic renal insufficiency, you know, a little hit with antibiotics, maybe a hit with um, some low-dose anti-inflammatories, a little hypotension, a little volume depletion, can become a real big problem postoperatively. So although I don't routinely do labs, these are the people um, that I check labs on postoperatively because I just want to make sure that the following morning that their chronic kidney disease is still stable. Um, diabetes, again, you know, we talked about got to get the A1Cs, got to check that. Um, and LFTs, you know, someone has had a history of um, liver disease, cirrhosis, fatty liver, bleeding problems, bleeding complications. You know, I'm checking these LFTs to make sure that I'm not going to run into some issue where I can't get this, you know, wound um, to stop bleeding postoperatively. And then we run into transfusion issues and wound issues and infection issues, and it kind of opens up Pandora's box. So a lot of information there um, and a lot of things to think about. So it's really good for you, the way your brain works, is to try to put together some checklist that just allows you to go through. Um, there's a lot of interesting articles that um, are out there, and I'll put those references in the show notes. So if you wanted to go back and review some of these um, to take a look and see what are the things that we are most interested in in this preoperative workup arena to make sure that our patients are as optimized as possible to potentially limit the risk of postoperative complications. So thanks again for listening. Um, I'm Adam Rosen. You've been listening to the Total Need Tips and Pearls podcast. Until next time, stay safe. You've been listening to the Total Need Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.